Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 11th, 2021 to 1121, the impeachment trial edition, the impeachment trial again edition, I guess. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I am joined, as ever, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from her home in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. And by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from uh, not from his home because he's he's doing the shoe leather reporting that John Dickerson is so famous for. Where are you, John? <laughs> uh, I am in uh, Georgia working on a piece for 60 Minutes, which everybody will um, hopefully be able to see in the middle of March. That would be great. Today, you'll still get delicious content from John Dickerson. And that delicious content, we are going to talk about the impeachment trial that preoccupies the Senate we're going to talk about whether the right-wing media ecosystem can be saved and what affect these lawsuits that are being brought by some of the companies attacked by Fox and other right-wing media, what effect those lawsuits might have on the right-wing media. Then we'll talk about whether Tennessee executed an innocent man. We have a Bazelon investigation and the implications of that for the future of the death penalty. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Plus, who will Joe Biden nominate to succeed Stephen Breyer, who has not yet resigned? Plots watch day 22. <laughs> uh, anyway, John Roberts cannot be bothered to preside over the second impeachment trial of former President Trump. You cannot blame him exactly. The first two days of this trial, we're taping on Thursday morning, have been really sad and really ugly. A spectacle of the tragic crisis, the tragic perilous moment in American politics. It has been a depiction of the the true ugliness that was unleashed on January 6th and, the, and the, what led up to it. It is clear, Emily, that Donald Trump will not be convicted in this trial, and thence, therefore, there cannot be a vote to bar him from future office. Is that a shame? I mean, should there be, given this damning pre- presentation, should he be convicted based on what you've seen so far? Well, it would be nice to feel like you had a jury that was neutral and open to the evidence, right? Like, I mean, neutral is a little much to ask of members of the Senate, but like open to the possibility of conviction and of weighing the evidence or of not convicting on the Democratic side if they feel like the case for incitement has not been made. Because remember, I mean, we're seeing this very damning footage, but, and it's really upsetting. We should talk about that. But the question is, how much to hold the president responsible. And I don't think that we do have uh, that openness to hearing the evidence um, in any kind of impartial way. And it's partly because some of the senators who are sitting, listening to this were kind of part of stoking the fears and the lies that led to this insurrection. Emily, to be fair, uh, Josh Hawley is not listening. So it's not fair to accuse him of listening. He's blocked his He's sitting there reading. He's just sitting there reading other things during the trial. With his feet gotcha. up on a desk. It's astonishing. He's lucky he has a desk. So, Also, Emily, I just want you to hit the legal question that was dealt with on the first day a little bit, which is that Republicans who are going to vote not to convict the president are hanging their defense on the idea that this trial is not allowed under the Constitution because he's no longer the president. It's not doable. What is the basic nature of that claim? And, and was it rebutted? The basic nature of the claim is that you can't impeach the president after he leaves office because the Constitution talks about impeachment in the context of removal as the punishment. 
the the rebuttal, which I believe is powerful, is that there is a second mention of impeachment in the Constitution, which also talks about further disqualification from office. And of course, that punishment does not depend on being in office. I would say a second part of the strong argument in rebuttal is that Congress has done this before. They've impeached people who had already left office, like the Secretary of State for Ulysses Grant at some moment in the 19th century, David will at least remember the decade. Belknap. I think he was Secretary of War. (laughs) Thank you. Not Secretary of State. He was Secretary of War. Okay, good. Thank you. Which we don't even have that anymore. That's such an interesting... Secretary of Defense. I know. I like it better. Anyway, for me, what is perhaps... So those are compelling parts of the argument. I buy this argument. The other part of this is that if there is a clause of the Constitution where we would care what Congress thinks and how Congress wants to interpret that clause, it is the impeachment clause. This is a congressional power. And so the notion that the Supreme Court is going to step in and say, no, 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 when there's this precedent on the books and this other textual reference, I I just, it seems wildly implausible to me. John, do you think, as far as Republicans and Republican voters, that this ploy this sort of oh we can't possibly do this so this whole trial is is constitutionally uh invalid it's unsterile uh can't be touched uh that that's that's going to work with their constituents seems like it yes because it does be and that's because that's what's motivating them as we've talked about for several weeks what is the the how robust is the market that Donald Trump created and the market that created the conditions that led to the insurrection, putting fantasy over reality, privileging the narrow interests of the most virulent members of your base over the public good. And there was a glimmer of a chance that the distribution of reason might increase from zero in the deliberations of some of the members of the Senate. I think in the last several weeks, it's been pretty clear that the that the interests of the base are, are what's ruling here. Um, as Emily said, the Constitution is, this constitutional argument is helpful because you don't even have to, you know, it allows you to not have to engage in, the, in those, in the ugliness of the day or engage even with the manager's case, which was pretty well prepared and put together. And I mean, the the first day, they they spent a great deal of time talking about the January exception, which is the idea that a president can do whatever they want to try and stay in office, and they'll go scot-free because basically their term will run out, which is the, the logical conclusion of believing that the Constitution had no role to play in the impeachment. And they all came and kept, back, kept coming back to that, which is, it seems to me, useful argumentation. And then the way in which they used footage and emotion and particularly the the breathtaking footage of how close it all came to uh, senators getting killed, probably, or at least severely injured, and the vice president and the Speaker of the House. I thought they all did that that all very well. But of course, the benefit of the, the notion that this isn't constitutional is that it allows those members who feel some pull either from their conscience or who might worry that, that some constituents might be bothered by their seeming indifference to the horror of the day, it gives them, you know, some potential cover, although as Emily points out, it's not that much cover. And then finally, this is about history and about something bigger than than something I think you can escape through a narrow door. When people look back at this moment and look at the horror of that day, it seems to me they will ask, well, what did you do in the face of that? And if the answer is nothing, or I made successful claims about how to sort of protect Donald Trump or protect our party, 
I don't know how that's going to look in the long stretch of history. Well, speaking of the long stretch of history, Lindsey Graham's remarks this week were that history would be the judge, not the Senate. But of course, the fundamental misunderstanding there is that history judges when, in the moment, people respond, right? Nixon was disgraced because of his resignation. If that had been ignored, he would have a different historical valence and meaning, and we would draw different lessons. And so I think it's just a fundamental abdication of responsibility to talk about history judging someone in that way. Also, history, what's amazing about the footage and the is, is I mean, it's powerful and it's not going to go away. I mean, you have powerful images that as a member of the Senate, you have to wrestle with, although some of them are not. I mean, um, Ted Cruz said Wednesday's hearing with all of its emotional and powerful footage was just sound and fury. Lindsey Graham said it was a waste of time. Senator Scott from Florida said a version of the same thing. Obviously, they've said that before about various things. They certainly said it about the first impeachment. But one of the things that's happened with the insurrection was that what was foretold either the minute after the election when Donald Trump said it was stolen and people said there's a cost to saying that and that cost is going to be high, or people who even long before that predicted that the president's behavior would lead to a moment uh, like the insurrection. When, when what has been foretold comes to pass, it seems to me it should change your view about history's ultimate verdict. I mean, a lot of what gets you out of thinking history's going to judge you poorly is you think, ah, that'll never happen. But people who said, ah, that'll never happen, then the sixth happened. So you would think that you might be a little more tender in your feelings about how maybe history is going to turn out the way that people predicting it might actually are predicting. Yeah, but I mean, you're treating you're treating these senators, you're treating Graham and Scott and Cruz like they're bigger people than they are. They've chosen a path of ignorance and pandering to the worst instincts of a their political supporters for for entirely crass reasons. And as we'll get to in our next topic, they have a media ecosystem that allows them to do that without consequence. And so I think when you talk about like, well, history will do this, history will do that. I mean, really, it just depends on what who writes the history, whose history is it? To me, it is not at all certain that that in a century, people will look back on the Capitol insurrection and say, oh, look, there was a moment of right wing white supremacist, nationalist craziness stoked by the president gone awry that destroyed our system. It may, may be seen as a, this kind of beginnings of some, some sort of patriotic moment, depending on how our history unfolds. Honestly, it's just, I, I have no confidence in any of that. So I will confess that I was skeptical going into this week that I wanted to sit through a lot of this. I felt like we were being yanked into the reality of a month ago. I want the world to move on. I want Washington to accomplish some things. Like, I just had this feeling of, like, do we really need this? And I felt like the video I saw this week that I had never seen before actually mattered in the world because it was from the point of view of the Capitol Police and other security in a lot of instances. And whatever mistakes their hires up and some of them made on that day, some of them were in terrible danger. And in a position where you know, in pairs or or on their own, they were faced with these people coming in the door. And I felt the sense of danger and the overrunness of it really, like, got to me. Uh, and in addition, I think the images you were talking about, John, involving, you know, 
actually seeing Vice President Pence being whisked down the stairs, not far from where people were marauding, or Nancy Pelosi's staff, like, hustling their way into an office and locking the door, a door that was going to be burst down, although luckily there was an inner door that held in that office. I found myself having more patience for it than I thought I would. Like, I was a little worried that it was going to feel forgive me for this, self-indulgent, that Congress that was the victim of this assault was going to seem too self-absorbed. But I don't feel that way now. I feel reminded of how much this was an assault on our democracy, on all of us, in a sense. Do you think if a senator had been killed that this would be in any sense different? Yeah. Do you think they'd take it more seriously? I what What's amazing, I, I do think that, although now that I think about it, I mean, it, I agree with you, Emily. I had the same feeling. I thought it was kind of going to be overdone, and I thought it, that's why I thought it was pr- effectively argued. But David, to your point, one of the striking things that came across in Wednesday's testimony was this footage, which I guess has been out there, but I hadn't seen it before, where the um, insurrectionists are, are huddled around Ted Cruz's desk looking for what they call evidence. And one of them uh, reads that that Cruz was going to ad- ob- object to the counting of the electoral votes from from Arizona and said he was going to sell us out all along. He misunderstood what Cruz was in fact trying to do, and one of his confederates quickly fact-checked him. But but what it proved to me was, of course, they weren't there for a cause, really, other than Donald Trump. I mean, this was not a fully uh, a group that was fully versed in all the details. And secondly, it, but for the fact-check, you know, the marauding band, if they'd run into Ted Cruz, would have perhaps gone after him and he was one of the people that was, you know, on their team and on their side. And when you, if those of you who are listening, if you haven't seen the footage, it's not too much to say that they would have gone after them. I mean, it's absolutely, it's absolutely well, clear. The, the cries about going after Mike Pence are very audible. Hang, hang Mike Pence. Yeah. But I mean, also just the sort of the, the, the voracious um, swinging of anything close at hand to, to go after the cops. The pace and the virulence of it was something that I had not felt until the footage of Wednesday. I mean, it was a mob, right? That's what happens in mobs. Do, People lose control. Do you guys think that the the stronger charge against the president in this impeachment, and by asking this question, it's clear, I do think this, is a dereliction of duty rather than an incitement claim? Hmm. That, yes, it is absolutely true that he, he encouraged this you know, he encouraged them to go to the Capitol and his whole month of buildup was, was, um, you know, was fuel in it. But that, that his, his complete abdication of responsibility as president to do anything to intervene when, when Congress was under deadly attack is, and to, in, in fact, appeared to be excited about that is, to me, is just like, wow, that is completely disqualifying. That's a clear, a clear dereliction of duty. And that is a, there's no, question that that's a crime. And you don't have to guess. In other words, once the violence starts happening, people were calling the president, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, was calling the president, telling him to call off the dogs. Why was he calling the president? Could have called other people. He was calling the president because the president could do something. Kellyanne Conway called the president. He did nothing. And in fact, there's reporting that he was delighted by it. One of the things that, going back to your point about history, David, which I think is a a good point, one of the things that strikes me when you think about history and how it will look at this is the gymnastics that are required to defend the president and how absurd those kinds of gymnastics look 
when time passes. And I feel this way when I go back and write whistle stops. I think, how could anybody have said that in the moment? It looks so cockamamie after some years pass and and you lose the passion of the moment. But you have people saying, well, the president on the 6th did say the word peacefully. So there are people in high office who constantly rearrange the plain meaning of the president's words or ignore the president's words in order to not have to come face to face with him and now are putting the entire weight of their defense on the idea that despite everything else he said, the word peacefully means that he wanted the protesters to protest peacefully. He wanted them to just rush up to the Capitol and furrow their brows extra hard and clench their tiny fists as they shook them at the lawmakers. But let's imagine for a moment that you embrace the idea that he wanted this to be done peacefully. If that were the case, if a single utterance of the word could beat back all of the other work that he'd done to incite these people, if that was truly what was in his heart, then presumably when all this violence started happening in his name, he should have bestirred himself a little bit. But of course he didn't. So that's back to your point, David, which is you don't have to guess. It happened and he didn't either fulfill his duty or, I mean, he did the opposite. I hope everyone caught that paraphrasing of where the wild things are in the middle of John's excellent speech. I just want to make clear, so our producer is asking the good question, why not have a separate charge for the dereliction of duty? And I think that that's partly because the house managers probably wanted to keep this relatively simple and clean. And because they see that lack of action as evidence for the incitement charge in the way, basically, John, you were just arguing. And the other thing about incitement, if this were criminal prosecution, we would have a narrow definition of incitement comes from the Supreme Court in the 1960s. You have to have the specific intent to cause an imminent unlawful action. And the question would be, does that what to me seems like doublespeak of peacefully mean that Trump didn't think that he was urging people towards something that was a criminal act? I mean, it seems to me like if you were in criminal case, you would argue that it was pretty clear, it was really clear he wanted them to disrupt the counting of the electors, and that that was the criminal act, that even if you can't prove exactly that he was advocating violence, that you could have that part. But it would be harder. It doesn't matter in this context, because impeachment can be for high crimes and misdemeanors, Congress gets to define it. And in this context, I think it's clear, at least to me, that you can make an argument there should be a broader definition of incitement that includes recklessness, right? This is the president. You want the president to not act with recklessness in a way that could stir up violence. It's actually really unusual to have incitement by an elected leader of a big country, right, against his own people, his own co-equal branch of government. And so that, I think, is an important, at least to me, legal distinction to make about the context of this proceeding. I think it would fail as a, as a just a straight-up criminal case. I mean, he's, he's distanced himself. He's careful. I mean, that's whole Trump's whole thing. I mean, Trump has spent the last five years inciting people, encouraging people towards violence. Like when at the, the rallies, when he's always like, you know, they, we, we used to, you know, hit those guys hard or whatever those things he would yeah, say. Yeah, there was a lawsuit over that. The judge ruled against him and then the appeals court judges ruled for him. Exactly about this double speak. Go get him. Oh, well, I didn't yeah. mean hurt them. Anyway, yeah. continue. Yeah, I think I think he he is always careful to be, you know, literal when he wants to be literal and figurative when he wants to be figurative and picks whatever side is convenient. Right. Yeah. So, John, one one reason why Trump might get an acquittal here is from for a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. <laughs> uh, he has his lawyers are quite unusual. 
Uh, do you think do you think that is uh, helping him? I don't. Th- I think don't think it's helping him. Particularly, I mean, Bruce Castor, his lead uh, lawyer, who came on after the first presentation by the House impeachment managers, was it was like a Dadaist. It was just amazing, ladies and gentlemen. We are in a trial in the Senate, but many of you live in the House, and yet this is not happening in the House. Of course, some of you may live in apartments. And there is no branch of the government called the apartments. And why? Because the founders made it that way. It was, I mean, he didn't say those things, but that was, but that was well a version topic. of what uh, was going on. It was, it was, it was, I, I, I mean, I guess there's some reporting that, that his intent was to try to kind of deflate the pressure from the room. He complimented the impeachment managers on the, on their case several times, which is a, a familiar lawyer's trick, which is I show magnanimity in the presentation of their case because I'm not completely devoid of reason. I can recognize a good case, even though I, I think the case has the, the following holes. But there was no real decimation to come. So, you know, but of course, it, it sort of proves or shows the extent to which it doesn't really matter because the audience is not... The House impeachment manners have to convince 17 Republicans those 17 Republicans aren't aren't going to materialize, and the quality of, of the defense isn't going to change that too much. Uh, although, after all those images, I wonder if, um, even though it might not pick up more in the 17, I, I wonder, I mean, all these senators are going to have to come up and explain their vote in some way, and, and maybe a lot will just try to run out of the room uh, after saying it's not constitutional. But um, to, to have seen all of that and not address it in some form as a as a member of American public life, I think that that feels like it, it's harder after all those images. I thought it was interesting, though, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana said afterward, like, his lawyers were terrible. The argument for constitutionality in favor of it was much stronger. And he joined the other five Republicans who are expected to vote for the trial being constitutional. And apparently he's gotten a ton of criticism at home in Louisiana from all his voters. And he's like going to be in a little bit of a pickle. I mean, right? Because he's now admitted the kind of dry legal principle. Anyway. Yeah, no, but that, you know, that shows the market at, at work. All right, let's move on. One reason why the senators in, in the Republican caucus are feel so safe not taking this impeachment trial seriously is that the conservative media is not taking this impeachment trial seriously. If you tuned into Fox or Newsmax or One American Network, not that I did, honestly, this is just me reading about what other people say about them. I do not tune into them as a matter of regular practice. They are paying very little attention to what's happening in the impeachment trial. They're attacking the socialist Biden agenda instead. Is there anything, Emily, that you think can can crack this open? There are these now a pair of lawsuits that are attempting to... You stole, you stole my line about the white knight that's riding in on the horse, the pair okay, of libel lawsuits. Go ahead, white knight. I feel like <laughs> no. white knight, white knight is, is the name of a, of a white supremacist group that hasn't quite gotten oh, formed no. yet. I scratched that. Forget it. Okay, so it's like a purple knight riding in on a yellow steed. How about that? Anyway. Okay, so... Often, uh, journalists, people who worry about robust free speech rights, do not like libel lawsuits because they can be used as a tool of the powerful to silence opponents. These libel lawsuits are against um, Fox and Giuliani and Sidney Powell lawyer for spreading defamatory lies about 
companies, actual companies, these voting machine companies, Dominion and Smartmatic. And what is significant here is that this is exactly what the law of defamation is created to protect. You are trying to build yourself as a property and your reputation has been shredded to pieces by the widespread dissemination of completely conjured lies about you, that, you know, you were founded by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and you have nothing to do with that, that you participate, your machines were all over the country in these, you know, quote, disputed states when actually they were nowhere to be found anywhere. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so usually media outlets, when they let people come on air and spread lies, have the defense, well, we didn't know what they were going to say and we were just covering this. But this, the question in this case, there are two big legal questions. So the first is, were Dominion and Smartmatic public figures in the law, which means that then they have to reach this higher bar of showing reckless disregard for the truth. I actually think maybe they could show that, but it would be easier if they were treated as private figures, legally speaking. And then the second is, did Fox and, uh, you know, these other right-wing networks were they clearly on notice about what these guests were going to say? And were their hosts aiding and abetting and encouraging and, you know, participating, basically? And when I look at the evidence in this complaint, it seems pretty clear to me. And so I feel like it's actually going to be important that these suits happen. And you already see repercussions. Lou Dobbs is going off the air. And, you know, uh, Newsmank yanked the my pillow guy the other day and, like, shut him up, sort of gave him the actual hook to get him off. So... Look, I mean, that seems like it is one check. It's not enough, uh, but it's something. Yeah, it's so not enough. I mean, it's just vastly not enough. I let's. I love the public figure question because one of the interesting points here is that Smartmatic and Dominion Voting Systems, two companies you had never heard of, definitely not. And ago, I'm like sure. an election law nerd person. Were public became public figures because they were subject to a campaign of smears and libel or defamation by folks in the right-wing media ecosystem. And that's what made them public figures. They certainly didn't, they had no intent of being public figures. They weren't, they were, they were acting very quietly in all other respects. Right. And that is, means that they have a strong argument that they're not public figures because it can't be that like, oh, we ruined your reputation and that's why you're a public figure because we talked about you and lied about you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just underline why this is so important you know, the market isn't created by Donald Trump. I mean, he boosted it, but it's being maintained by an ecosystem that is that is detached from reality or to put it another way, that is all about the tribe. And there's a there is a smaller version of this, as Senator Bennett argues on the Democratic side. I'm not saying there's equivalence. I'm saying that there are parts of the the and this is true of political parties always. There are those who are interested in making the tent bigger and those that are interested in ejecting heretics. It's just that the brittleness of religious heretic ejection is um, far, far more virulent on the, on the right than on the left. Well, I, I should say far more on the right than the left. I'll take one far away. I, I want to talk about this right-wing media ecosystem less as a function of, of human malevolence and of, of partisanship than as a function of technology. And I think those of us who hearken back to a quieter and more consensus time in America, a time when, when there was parties were able to work together, look to, look to a period in really post-war America until the 80s, say. And what you had was a media technology 
which did not allow for a huge diversity of voices. You had three broadcast networks for most of that time. In most cities, you had one or two newspapers that could afford a widespread distribution. You had a quite limited number of radio outlets because it was constrained by the availability of, of, of spectrum that you could use that was available to radio. And the proper play, if you were a media business, was consensus. And it was to drive people towards consensus because you were playing for a mass audience. And what happens with the first with the rise of the FM band on radio, then with the rise of cable, then with the rise of the internet, is that to own a media venture is no longer to to be seeking a mass audience because there are so many different ways to reach an audience at scale. And it no longer is the case that you want to really go for some kind of middling, muddy, gluey center because that center was only sort of forced together because people had fewer choices. Once people had choices and they could pick a thing that was much more congenial to them, they began to be targeted. And one of the things that the folks who founded Fox realized was, oh, there's a real market to target conservatives. And then it becomes, it just accelerates and accelerates and the internet makes it, you know, you can get crazier and crazier and crazier. And it, what has happened with the right-wing media ecosystem is no different than what it, or is very analogous to what's happening to all of us with those of us who are streaming TV fans. It's like, oh, now there's a world for me where I can watch, you know, this kind of British uh, crime drama all the time. And that that nichiness is is a function of a technology that allows us to be targeted better and better and better and, and a, a vanishing of the value of ultra mass media. John, you happen to work, both of you actually work at like the biggest mass media things that exist, but they have so much less influence. The CBS of today has so much less influence than it did as the CBS of, of 40 years ago. And the New York Times, similarly, is a huge amount of influence, but in a very narrow demographically kind of coherent well, uh, group. Your entire audience also had now has so many more other things to go watch and think about that have nothing to do with news. That, in other words, yes. in the past, you weren't you weren't competing with such a an attractive entertainment environment, such an uh, such an attractive attention distraction environment. So you have one portion of your audience that has a kind of light touch interest in the news and they now are just basically interested in so many other things and have you know they can get what they need in kind of little bursts and the most virulent part of your audience the true news junkies they can do what you're saying which is go narrow cast so it the, the hiving off of the audience that that used to be there for the mass appeal is kind of it feels like a two-pronged thing one other point on that vein is that actually one reason why i think the right wing is so much more successful in the news politics ecosystem than the left is that that the left is so good at all the rest of culture that so much else of culture is dominated by the left so that the right for the right news and politics has become a form of entertainment that they're really good at and successful at and vi and where it's really vibrant. I think you can make a real strong case that the most successful conservative entertainer in America is Tucker Carlson. Well, Donald Trump, I guess, but it's it's Tucker Carlson. It's somebody who who is a who's fundamentally sitting there fulminating about the news. Whereas the you know left wing entertainers, it's everyone. It's the whole world, and you have so many other choices. If only there was like good conservative music or good conservative television, like people you know tell could conservative. People would spend less time watching the stupidity on Fox. Oh, so I think you must have overstated that slightly, although I take your basic point. So one thing, though, I want to go back to. So, David, you made this excellent historical market-based argument. 
I have to add the legal part, which is that part of the reason that we had the market structured that way was law. We had this idea that once you got your spot on the broadcast network or the radio channel, you had a public interest obligation. You had an obligation to present multiple points of view through the Fairness Doctrine, which lasted from 1949 until the Reagan administration killed it in the early 80s. And you see Rush Limbaugh go on the air exactly when the Reagan administration ends the Fairness Doctrine, right? And then you see the rise of Fox a few years later after the Reagan administration and the George H.W. Bush administration give them a pass um, and let them buy things that the usual diversity of ownership regulations wouldn't have allowed for. So I just feel like it's always important to remember there's this legal and regulatory like skeleton, this these bones um, behind the market-based choices that help drive them. And I have to uh, throw in a plug for from my friend Brian Rosenwald's book, Talk Radios America, which outlines this historical, both the points you were just making about the change in the industry and how that uh, basically overtook the, the Republican Party in all of these um, really interesting ways. Can I yeah. say one more thing about competition? So there's this economist at Stanford named Matthew Genskow who said something to me like two years ago that I think about all the time, which is that the problem with conservative media is there's not enough competition. And actually, lately, there's more competition. Fox is being kind of, you know, sniped at and threatened by OAN and Newsmax. But it's actually pulling in a more right-wing direction. Like, the idea was supposed to be that you would have more conservative choices, that they would fact-check each other, that you wouldn't have Dominion and Smartmatic having these defamation suits against every single network because someone would be saying, like, hey, I'm speaking for the truth here on the right as a trusted authority among reality-based conservatives. And I'm still wondering where that is. And I wonder, David, if your point about culture is well taken here, too, that if there were more conservative voices in pop culture, and there are some, but more trusted voices who were this reality check, like whether that is also this big blind spot of the left to take over that space and make people who are more conservative feel excluded from it if that is part of the problem here. Though I realize it's become very broad. Let me engage in fantasy for a moment. Do either of you think there is a market? Because we all know the benefit of strong, well-presented arguments from the opposite side, whatever side you are on. So if you are either in the middle or to the left, do you think there are enough people in the middle or to the left who would want a well-reasoned conservative argument about any of the major issues of the day for the purposes, if, if for no other reason, uh, that for the purpose of understanding of, it, yeah, of being informed, understanding it or sharpening your own thinking. I mean, um, I mean, I, mean, guys, I am so worried. About how many people right do now, we, how many guys, humans do we think are involved in that? Yeah. I mean, there, that exists. I mean, that's what the bulwark is. That's to a certain extent what national review is. That's our, our occasional guest and friend, David French is. And it's like, there's no market for it. Right. There okay. is no market for it on the left or the right. right. It is like a tiny market of our friends. That's where the market is. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess what I'm, that's what I'm asking. Is it, is it, is it that small? And you're saying it is. Slate Plus members get benefits. So many benefits. The number of benefits is enormous when you become a Slate Plus member. Zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus segments of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, just the general good feeling of supporting the work we do here on the GabFest. Also, bonus segments on our show. And this week's bonus segment on the GabFest is going to be, in and of itself, the magnificent 
Hulu film documentary show that uh, we've all now watched and wanted to dig into. So we're going to talk about that. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It's only a dollar for the first month. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Emily, who is Sedley Alley? Uh, Sedley Alley is um, a man from Tennessee who, in 1985, was arrested and prosecuted for murder. It was a terrible killing in Millington, Tennessee, which is outside of Memphis. There's a naval air base there. A young Lance Corporal named Suzanne Collins went for a run one night, and her body was found terribly brutalized the next morning. There were some witnesses who saw somebody driving a brown station wagon near where they had also seen Collins running. And Sedley Alley was driving a dark green station wagon. So he was picked up by investigators from the Navy. At first, he denied knowing anything about the killing. He'd been drinking heavily that night. After about 12 hours of questioning, he gave a confession, which he later said was false and coerced. The confession had problems. It didn't match various facts about the crime in that way that false confessions can be off, like he gave the wrong location. He described the injuries in a way that was impossible, um, you know, just didn't match the autopsy report. But he was convicted anyway. It's pretty clear his lawyers did like had no faith that he was innocent. They mounted an insanity defense, which was pretty doomed. And he was sentenced to death because of the heinous nature of the crime, so this all happened before the advent of DNA testing, but there's a lot of crime scene evidence, including this pair of male underwear that was found right near the body that the investigators assumed came from the assailant, and various other objects, too. In 
2001, Tennessee passed a law giving a really broad right to DNA testing post-conviction. You don't have a constitutional right to this. There are some states that you, where you don't get to do the testing. But this is like a good law for defense lawyers. And so Sedley Alley's lawyers went back to court and they tried to get the testing. And a Tennessee appeals court gave what I think of as like a bizarre reason to deny the testing. Allie's lawyers had said, look, one thing we could do if we had tested this evidence, we could obviously find out if Sedley Allie's DNA is on the evidence. But if it's not, we could also run it through the databases where you look for other potential suspects. And the Tennessee court said, nope, that's not part of what this statute does. You can't look for another suspect. And so Sedley Alley was executed in 2006 without any DNA testing of this evidence. In 2011, the Tennessee Supreme Court said, oh, wait, that reading of our DNA statute? Wrong. That doesn't make sense. No, no, you can look for another suspect. And so... What has happening now that got me interested in this case is that Sedley Alley has a daughter named April, and she has gone back to court representing her father's estate, trying to stand in his shoes to say, I want to test this evidence. I want to know whether my father committed this crime. And more importantly, there are other potential suspects out there that investigators in other states have identified. And I want to find out whether this killer is still at large. So there was an argument at the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals last week in this case, and that was why I wrote about it. Emily, you said that to date no case had emerged in which DNA or other evidence had provided definitive proof that that an innocent person was executed. Is that right? Or is that just in Tennessee. No, it's true. I mean, so look, there are a number of cases in which there's really strong evidence that we probably executed someone innocent. Um, Maybe some listeners know about Cameron Todd Willingham, who was executed in Texas with this super fishy evidence of arson based on fire marks that seems like it's really suspect. But we don't know for sure DNA analysis that excluded Sedley Alley and actually found somebody else on that clothing would be that kind of close to 100% certainty. Now, I should make clear, it is possible it is Sedley Alley's DNA on that evidence, right? I don't know. Part of what I found quite moving about talking to April, his daughter, was that Her father always said that he couldn't remember. He didn't have any memory of committing this crime, but he also told her, well, if I did do it, then I deserve to be executed. And so for her, this is partly about the idea that either way she would be at peace, but it haunts her that there could be some other person out there who is still hurting people or, you know, was arrested for another crime who actually did this. I think the, you know, to me, the kind of fundamental part of this argument is like, well, if we don't know the answer? Like, do we lose interest in the answer to the mystery, the whodunit, because someone has already been executed because of a legal error that the courts made? The headline in the piece, Emily, is did Tennessee execute an innocent man? If DNA exonerates Sedley Alley, it could hasten an end to capital punishment. DNA brings a kind of certainty that eyewitness evidence does not. That Doesn't that mean that DNA evidence is a stronger tool for the death penalty if it can bring greater certainty and then people will feel like oh the chances of us executing someone innocent is much lower than it was back in the days when we just relied on eyewitnesses who are incredibly unreliable i mean that's a great point you can dna definitely like is a double-edged sword in that way you know it's not completely infallible i should say but it is more definitive than what we had before 
However, I think the argument that this could accelerate the end of the death penalty, which was what Barry Sheck, the head of the Innocence Project, said to me, is that it's terrifying to imagine the state killing an innocent person. It's an irrevocable punishment. It's like a the most horrifying kind of um, exercise of the police power. And I guess the second thing I would say is that there's still a lot of murders and other crimes committed in which there's no DNA. And it's all about witnesses. And so the problems that we have with witness fallibility remain endemic in the system. One of the things that I liked as I read about this was starting to understand one of the really stupid rules that was put in place that forbade people from appealing their convictions and and making a claim that they were innocent after they had pled guilty. Like lots and lots of people end up pleading guilty and then go back and say they're innocent. And in a lot of states, it sounds like that was barred. So many people make guilty pleas because they're just like, yeah. like piled. There are so many charges piled up and they make like a, they make a just a strategic decision about their life. Like I cannot possibly the risk of of, of yes. not taking this plea is so great that I'm going to take it even though I'm innocent. But I can't then if you're then barred from ever saying that you're innocent, it's it's kind of sucks. Yes, it does. One of the reasons for those kinds of um, court limits is that we didn't understand how prevalent false confessions were. Like they turn out to be like 20 percent of exonerations. It's really high. It happens a lot. Like people just get desperate. They're under questioning for many hours. They think, well, if I just say this, it'll be better afterward. They get confused. Like they just want to get out of the situation they're in. Sometimes it's often young people. It's very haunting, and I just think it took a long time for the system, for for voters, you know, the people that make the rules, the judges, to understand that this was really a prevalent problem. Because it feels so hard to understand, right? Like, why would you ever say you did something terrible that you didn't do? Except that if you think that the system is so much against you as a black American that that going through the system is going to be even worse— reminds me of when you were a kid and your bike went wobbly when you were going fast down a hill and there was a time where you thought i'm just gonna lay down the bike even though it's gonna crash and it's gonna be awful mm. it's better than the awful of either enduring the speeding down the road to the ultimate total cataclysm that will happen at the bottom or so there's both <laughs> the enduring and then the cataclysm but it's basically like awfulness that i can control is better than the uncontrollable even worse awfulness let us go to cocktail chatter when you are having a quiet drink with the fam, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering to them about? I was, um, for one reason or another in life, I signed up for an auction house that, um, you know, sends out like various things that are up for sale that are of a historical nature. And there was a George Washington letter that was for sale. I can't even remember how much they were asking, but I was reading the letter and it was, it was a, some innocuous thing, but at the end he signed it, your obedient servant, which we all remember from, from Hamilton that was part of various songs and, and, and was used most amusingly as um, Hamilton and Burr sent poison letters to each other that despite the dripping poison in the, letter, they would sign it, your obedient servant. So I was wondering where that came from. And it, it comes from the sort of period of court. I think it comes from the 17th century. And basically, when you were in court or in formal uh, affairs with people who were more powerful than you were, you did that as a sign of obeisance. And then 
that sort of trickled down into just common communication. Because I was thinking, why would George Washington, who is, of course, basically above everyone, say that he was anybody's obedient servant? So anyway, it was basically custom that falls out. But what I didn't realize, and, and of course should have, is that yours and yours sincerely, which do sort of remain in our common parlance or yours truly, are just shorthand for your obedient servant. That's, that's, that's where they come from. So when I've signed letters, yours in my life, what I'm really saying is your obedient servant, which I didn't really realize. Oh, my God. Huh. Wait, Maybe your, we shouldn't say that anymore. Wait, yours, we don't mean that. But why is yours sincerely? Yours, tru- yours truly? Means why are those yours, yours truly means your obedient servant truly. Or truly your obedient servant. Hmm. That's, that's what the internet told us anyway. <laughs> um huh. So let's, listeners, let's maybe listeners a, can. I'm gonna look on the second Google. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You listeners are free to to write in, and this may be another uh, instance of of Luke abrasion. I mean, that seems totally possible. It's like yours, like I am yeah. yours. It's a literal meaning. Yes, but yes, I'm, I'm gonna start googling as you chatter, Emily. What's your chatter? My chatter is about the census. My favorite don't say boring, obsession. So the Census Bureau is uh, shortly going to announce, I believe, that they are delaying the provision of redistricting data to the states until late September. And that is going to throw a big wrench into the state's map drawing plans. There are a couple of states with 2021 legislative elections. This is going to cause trouble for Virginia and New Jersey. And that will mean, presumably, that the old maps will have to stay in place. There's just not going to be any way to get them done in time for people to qualify for primaries, et cetera. But even going into 2022, there are some real questions about how this map drawing is going to happen because there are some statutory and state constitutional deadlines. So here is another issue that is going to come up. So Illinois has a provision with a deadline for finalizing maps of September 1st. And if you don't make the deadline. The state constitution says that you turn map making over to a panel of four Democrats, four Republicans, and one person randomly chosen from the two parties. That is really different from the Democrats who control the legislature in Illinois drawing the maps. So in the House of Representatives, Illinois currently has 18 seats. Democrats control 13 of 18, and they had their eye on doing more gerrymandering to get more seats. If it's like if they lose control over the gerrymandering process, they won't be able to do that. And, you know, I am not particularly a fan of extreme partisan gerrymandering. So even if you are pro the Democrats expanding your ho- their house share, you could think, well, fine, we'll just have a better or fairer map drawing process. My point is simply that this is worth watching this delay because it's going to have a kind of ripple effect on how redistricting happens for 2022 and perhaps beyond. And you're going to see a lot of litigation about it. I didn't listen to anything that Emily just said. I know. I'm sure she did. Was, Probably nobody did. The, I'm sorry. I was on the English language forum on Stack Exchange. It appears, a lot of ambiguity there, John. Oh, yeah. It does appear that, that yes, it is, your humble servant is one version of yours, but it's also your faithful son. You would also have signed it your faithful son. So it's not simply a shortening of the servant role. It's a shortening of any place where you, had, you would identify yourself, your, your loving uncle, uh, and becomes yours. So it's, it is not all the servant relationship. But how did it's it also first... not 100% clear that it is that that's the only usage 
of yours. But is it that yours may have arisen independently? Oh, so you think it may have arisen? That's the question: is whether it arose independently? I can imagine it derivating and then being accepted in those different contexts. But your point is that it might spring from its own branch. Well, it's, it's it might have spring from its own branch. Yours truly appears to be somewhat different. Uh, and in if yours, insofar as yours is certainly a shortening of a possessive, it could ha- it was your humble servant, but it's also your your loving your loving son, and your 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 faithful husband. Right. All of those things. Um, George Washington was humble servant, loving loving uh, son, doting husband. All of great uncles as well. So this is really a very specific address to the person you're writing the letter to, whereas my sign-offs are so generic, right? I never think of it as, like, your excellent friend. Yeah. My, but I guess once in a while. What I always I liked was those... Re- your children you probably write to. Your, you know, well, your excellent friend was what I meant, yeah. more like your loving mother, right? Yeah. I never write that. I don't actually write to my children, like, with sign-offs at all. I text them. Who signs yeah. off on a text? They, like, when I send them email, they're confused. Yeah, I don't know why when texts became the mode of communication, I still find them... Why not use email? Leave. I want three people to be able to text me: my wife, my daughter, and my son. <laughs> Everybody else, go back Should to we, email. I'll stop texting you. You're no, a terrible texter. You're, you're like you never reply. You're, you're you're in the in the, the ante room to that group. But I mean, everybody on God's green earth is texting now, and so now it's just as cluttered and cl- as as email. All right, my chatter is about a uh, really good interesting thought-provoking documentary i watched on television last night on hulu it's from your colleagues at the new york times emily it's called framing britney spears yes seems so good i'm looking forward to watching it yes and it's about uh britney spears but not really about britney spears as you understand it. it's about the odd way in which britney spears shortly after her career started when she was still a very young woman had her life taken over by her father and she was placed in what's called a conservatorship. And so that Britney Spears for the last 13 years has not controlled her own money or really what her own, what she does with her life or her body and her herself. And she's under a close watch in a way that most adults are not. And conservatorship is something that's usually done for, for an incapable older person. And it's very unusual for somebody like Brittany, who is young and who's so clearly capable in certain aspects of her life to be placed in this in this position. So it's it is uh, it's a really provocative documentary. And also, I mean, the, the kind of most disturbing parts of it are look hearkening back to the rise of Britney Spears when she was 17, 18 years old and the really disgusting ways in which the media treated her and obsessed about her body and her sexuality. And and it's it's very unsettling to see that. And I'm sure we do it. We're still doing it today. No doubt with young women, it's a thing that happens to young women, young women in in public life, but it really was incredibly gross with Brittany listeners. You send us great chatters. You tweet them to us at at slate Gabfest. It's wonderful. You send us so many choices and now we've adopted this great new uh, practice. We don't talk about it. You get to talk about it. So this week's listener chatter comes from James Dillard. Take it away, James. Hi, John, David, and Emily. Uh, I'm James, and I'm coming from Zurich, Switzerland. My cocktail chatter this week is an article called The Mystery of Trust by Amanda Ripley. And it's about how the U.S. military 
was able to become more trusted in the period from 1970 to the present. And it's actually the one institution that has been able to do this. And what I really enjoyed about it is that it provides um, some fodder for thought about how other institutions that might be able to do this as we try to rebuild a uh, civic society where people trust each other in the U.S. One passage in particular spoke to me. Uh, it's, it says this, uh, the research on trust is at once interesting and incomplete. Typically, trust gets traced back to three central ingredients, ability, benevolence, and integrity. Ability captures the obvious, rational reason to trust something or someone. They seem to know what they're doing. Benevolence reflects the sense that an organization has our best interests at heart, that they are motivated by the forces of good. And integrity means that the institution has strong, admirable values to which it adheres, even under pressure to do otherwise. Amen. That that feels like an outgrowth of our friend Amanda's forthcoming book, um, which is going to be great. Also, that was a model of the form of the listener chatter, I just want to say. Love. Clearly outlined, evidence presented, and on point. Huzzah, James Dillard in Zurich, Switzerland. That is our show for today. Gaffest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Audio. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Vazlon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Last week, we gave you a heads up uh, that we were going to talk about In and of Itself. And we are going to talk about In and of Itself. If you have not seen In and of Itself, you might not want to listen to this because we definitely will be spoiling it after some fashion yeah, don't in this conversation. If you haven't seen it, yeah. if you have any interest in yes. seeing it. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely go see it because it's really interesting. Even the very few people I've talked to who don't like it found it really interesting. So uh, let us, let's go. So, in and of itself is a was a stage show that was done in Los Angeles and then in New York, principally in New York, in New York for I think six hundred or so performances in the late twenty teens by a man named Derek Delgadio, who is a magician. He's a close up magician, a card trick magician um, would be a kind of the simplest way to describe his skills. It is a, a show that he created in in. A concert with Frank Oz, who's a director, sort of entertainer. He was the voice of Yoda, also Frank Oz, a uh, celebrated person. And the, together they made the show, and then Frank Oz then has directed a documentary film, which is on Hulu, called In and of Itself. That documentary film is a filming of this stage show of Delgadio in New York, you see it as a single coherent performance, but it's also you, it's clear from the way that the, sh- the show is put together that they're melding together many, many, layering many, many, many examples of this show. Uh, so, so you see different audiences and this same trick done five, ten times and done in different ways. Is that a fair basic summary of what, what it yes, is? Yes, I think. Yes. And, and just to jump in, though, the, the idea of magician and trick you have to really open up your aperture for that. I mean, there are the, the the wonderful thing about this show is the way in which it pulls you in and makes you think and and destabilizes you and 
and it just is different than normal trickery or normal magic. And yet it uses that as a, you know, as a way to get you. Um, so, but, but cause I think people, <laughs> and some of the people are really confused because they think it's just like, you know, like David Copperfield, um, which it's just not. To me, I actually, to be blunt, I didn't even like the first two thirds of the show. I thought it was pretentious. He takes on this role, the, the Rulatista and the set of interlocking stories about his life. And I did not connect with that. Uh, I didn't know what was happening. And then in the last third of it, with the two, again, to use this term trick, it's not, I don't even know what to do, but there's this, this act in which a person in the audience who seems to have been chosen at random is given, selected a letter at random, and inside that letter is a handwritten note from a loved one that has clearly been sent that Derek Delgadio has acquired by some means. And this person is now reading out loud or reading, not necessarily out loud, but reading to themselves. And then I guess out loud on stage is a feat of kind of incredible. And then the final trick where everyone in the audience has chosen this card of identity and Derek Delgadio identifies what card you have chosen and does it in such a way that people, every person feels themselves to be seen fully seen in that moment by him and to somehow he is connected it's not just like that they randomly chose a car but that somehow some piece of their identity has been has been expressed in this card and it's expressed because he sees it so vividly those two things i thought were among the most like that 30 minutes was just knocked the hell out of me and i just don't really understand i mean i have some ideas about why but i i just am interested in your guys's whether that was also what moved you or did the whole thing move you or what, what, what struck you? I felt like the Rulatista and that um, part of the story is about what the final thing you described is about. So they are connected. I feel like it sets the stage for it and why, and gets you to it. Um, I went to the show since everybody's listening has watched it. And if you haven't really not good uh, because you shouldn't be listening to this, but um, <laughs> can we scold yeah. you one more time? So I, um, I picked GabFest fans. That was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 